Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Wake up, Tony. I made a new friend. Real or imaginary? I'm going to tell you a little story today about a young man whose life was completely destroyed by fear. Want to tell mom and dad why you stopped taking your medication? Today's review tackles the multiverse madness of writer and director Richard Kelly's cult classic sci-fi thriller Donnie Darko, which is currently streaming on Tubi TV, in which troubled teenager Donnie Darko, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, survives a bizarre accident and begins receiving visions of a man named Frank in a rabbit suit who manipulates Donnie's unstable mind into committing increasingly alarming acts. And to help me navigate the film's parallel universes is returning friend of the show, Micah. Micah, welcome back. Hey, Jay. Glad to be back. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you today about Donnie Darko, a movie that I've only just revisited pretty recently for the first time in a couple of years. And it's one that now that I'm old enough to appreciate it, I can actually kind of think about it in more ways than it just being like, oh, it's a guy getting followed around by a deranged rabbit, you know? Right, right. It's like a, a, a bizarre version of Harvey that will... Movie. <laughs> it's interesting revisiting the movie now when I'm older because the first time I saw it was in high school and now getting to see it I kind of understand why this movie was always kind of destined for a cult classic because in revisiting it as much as I enjoy it and I'm able to appreciate it in new ways the when I think about how I could describe it to friends it's like such a difficult movie to kind of break down into a almost like a one or two sentence uh, like pitch if as it were yeah, it's it's really hard to do. And in fact, I think the best way to describe it, at least for me, actually comes from one of the deleted scenes um, of the original film. And I don't remember the exact line, but there's a line in in the in a deleted scene where Donnie Darko is described. I think he's talking to his uh, psychologist, and he describes this feeling like he's trying to explain what's going on, and he says something like, "It's it's like when you wake up when you first wake up from a dream." and you're you're chasing you're chasing the meaning of the dream and you can feel it slip away from you and that's how i've always felt about this film that it's a film that no matter how many times i've watched it it you can tell the meaning is right on the cusp of being there but it's just like you're always chasing it <laughs> i thought it was a really interesting i mean it's in a deleted scene it, it's nothing to do with interpreting the film but but it was a good summary way to think about it and a, and a, and, a, and a way for me to understand like you said how how difficult it is, honestly, to explain this film um, to somebody who's never seen it before, even or even to somebody who has seen it. Yeah, and that's what I found. I think that that's a great way to describe it in that I think this is the third time I've watched this movie this year, and every single time I find a new little plot point or a new little nod to an Easter egg or something like that that's kind of hinting early on at the bigger picture of the film. And it's something that it's really interesting in that you feel like, kind of like what you just said, in that... I'm always just on the cusp of grasping my understanding of the entire movie and the plot and everything. And then I'm like, well, what if this happened instead? Or what if that happened? And then I'm like, oh, now I need to rewatch it once more. But um, I'm curious, kind of like, what is your history with Donnie Darko? Do you remember the first time you saw it and what your initial impression of it was? Yeah, I, ab I absolutely do. Um, this film, so I, I saw this, this, this came out, this film came out in 2001. 
Uh, it was made uh, made in late 2000 and released at Sundance in early 2001. Uh, well, I'll talk a little about the production history, right? So, so then it was, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a cult film. It was a, it was a passion project of, of Richard Kelly's. It eventually came out in theaters on a limited run um, right after 9/11, uh, like the month after 9/11. And for those who haven't seen the film. Uh, Part of the plot involves uh, a, an airplane crash, killing people. Uh, so it's kind of the worst possible timing for movies generally, and you know, just doubly bad because of that plot element. So the film was not advertised at all. They did like no advertising for this, and it honestly didn't get a great reception from Sundance either. Anyway, so that was 2001. I, I don't remember actually how I first came across the film in 2002. I had just graduated uh, my undergrad. And I, I, I don't remember if I came across it from a friend or it might have been, you know, the very early days of Netflix back when we still got, you know, DVDs in the mail. I do remember this film being in my queue permanently. And I had the like, I very much remember having the two or three DVD, um, you know, at a time version of Netflix uh, for the young kids who don't know what that is. You used to get Netflix in the mail and you paid based on how many DVDs you could keep at home at a time before you would turn one back in and then get the next thing on your queue. Anyway, but I had this film in my, my Netflix queue DVD at home for like six months without turning it back in. <laughs> and I, I was obsessed with this movie. I saw this movie probably two or three times a week for almost a year. I, I really, really watched the heck out of this movie. Um, I enjoyed it so much. I showed it to everybody I, I could. I talked to everybody I could about it. Um, I was kind of obsessed. And I also remember, this is like ultra nerd. I remember in early 2000 going to, somebody did a stage version of this film in Harvard Square. Oh, wow. And I remember going, some little, like, it, I don't, it wasn't Harvard University. One of, one of the local Boston colleges did some kind of adaptation of some, somebody for, an adapt, for a grad project or something did this stage adaptation and it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It was, it was interesting. So anyway, I, I've, um, yeah, I've been a fan of this film for, uh, you know, 18 years and, uh, I do watch it whenever I come across it again for this. It's actually been a couple of years since I, since the last time I watched it before rewatching it for this discussion. And I do appreciate you're giving us the opportunity to talk about it. It's my favorite film. One of my favorite films, certainly maybe my favorite film. Um, but it is horror adjacent and I appreciate you, you know, like, and, and I actually, now that I'm watching it, you know, I've watched it, the, when you see a film so many times, 40, 50, 60 times, I, this time, I never watched it with the explicit, like, okay, I'm going to be talking about this on a horror podcast. You know, what, what do I think about this film? Um, and I saw more elements than I remembered, you know, and it's interesting to think about this film in, you know, this is a film about the apocalypse. It's a film about possession in a way. Um, and there's lots of references to horror. There's, um, uh, in, in the opening scenes when we're introduced to the parents of Donnie, uh, his mom is reading it, and his dad has the Langoliers on the shelf, which would have just come out in 1988, because this film was based, set in 1988. Uh, Richard Kelly was is in, incredibly uh, focused on set pieces and these tiny little details, which he, he used to be an architect and a painter, so he's very, very, very focused on the details of set design and things in his films. All these tiny little things, you know, books on the shelf mean something to him. Anyway, but it's just interesting to, to think about it there. And then, of course, there's a there's a scene in the middle uh, where they're in a theater and they're watching The Evil Dead. And Sam Raimi gave uh, let let um, Kelly use that footage for free. He, he he saw the script and appreciated it and thought, hey, I like this and go ahead and use it. Um, and originally, I, I think it was actually supposed to be that movie Chud. And I don't know. Yes. I don't know why it was that, and then it was changed. It was one of those things where they were trying to track down the rights of who actually owned the film and all the different properties and things like that, and they just couldn't track it down. So that's why Raimi came in at like the uh, the twelfth hour and was able to save the day. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's interesting that you talk about the horror elements, and I do agree that this is very much a horror adjacent film, but. Again, it kind of comes back to the idea of the reason why this movie was always destined for cult status. It, granted, when the film was released, it was not the most ideal time for a movie that dealt with a plane crash and whatnot. So the marketing took a hit. But also, how do you market this movie? Even if there is 
none of the kind of connection to when it's released in 9-11. Like, that's why when I watched the trip, because when I saw this, it was in high school and it was like an, a friend of a friend's older brother had the DVD lying around. So we were like, sure, let's watch it. And it was described to me as a horror movie. And so those are the elements I latched onto, right? Because I'm latching onto Frank. He's seeing this demented bunny and whatnot. He's being haunted by him to a certain extent. Yeah, and in, I mean, interestingly, in, in an interview, Richard Kelly, he refers to the Frank the Bunny kind of entity or character as uh, the monster. Like as he's designing, thinking about designing this character, he refers to it as the monster of the film. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it was interesting for me just before actually recording this, watching the trailer for the first time, because it's not something that, it's only something I started doing recently for older movies. How is this movie pitched to audiences? And the trailer is very heavily focusing on f literally like Frank, Frank whispering to uh, Donnie, him showing up and the whole, I guess, force field barrier between them when they're in the bathroom touching it. And in revisiting the movie so many times this year, it's m the film really stands up to me in terms of, it's not just like the horror elements that helps kind of capture the looming dread that Donnie is dealing with at the idea that he's facing the apocalypse, but it very much kind of just shows how multi-layered this film is. And I think that's why it's so difficult to describe to people because it can appeal to so many different people of so many different genres, right? And yeah. I think that I described it as a sci-fi thriller, but that's because what that's what it says on the IMDb page, right? Right, it's right. Kind of just speaking about it generally. And yet I was thinking about it recently, like if I was to describe this to friends that hadn't seen Donnie Darko, maybe they're not necessarily into horror movies. And while this is not a horror movie, it's got horror elements in it. Like I was thinking I would describe it as almost like a dark superhero movie, which is reductive obviously of considering what the film actually covers and like what superhero movies mean to certain people. But yeah. I feel like it's a good way to kind of just pitch this movie to a general audience. Maybe if that sort of vernacular was more popular back then or more common, they could have pitched it as something like that. But granted, that terminology didn't really uh, come around until much later. Yeah, I mean, th this movie is it's, it's so hard to define. It has all these elements. Uh, I mean, obviously it was decades before, but it has so much of the kind of the Stranger Things kind of vibe to it. It's, a, it's very much a period piece with kind of a kind of a monster element and kind of a not not a whodunit, but you, you know you have your main characters are all working to to solve a problem, or they're he's, Donnie's clearly on this path, right? Some of it is his own choice. Most of it is he's being led on a, on a path of discovery. At the same time, the audience is going with him on this journey. And also Richard Kelly talking about the film, he talks a lot about the hero's journey and you know kind of the classic elements of of stories, and they're all there. So yeah, it's 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 this this amazing blend of a of a highly kind of normal story on one hand, right? You have a protagonist who has a dilemma, he faces obstacles, he makes tough decisions, and he ends up, you know, kind of saving the world. Um, but on the other hand, there is just nothing whatsoever normal about this movie. And before we go any further, I, I guess, I mean, always you talk about spoilers and stuff, but for the love of God, please, if you have not seen this movie, <laughs> please don't listen yeah. anymore. Go watch the original theatrical cut. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, and just enjoy the experience because I wish I could go back and have that first experience again of, of watching this movie cold, have, knowing nothing about it. Um, there's been only a few, there's been very few films in my life that I remember just being just mesmerized from the beginning and not having no idea what the heck I'm watching. Um, another one actually, totally different kind of film is Moulin Rouge. I remember seeing that film in the theater and being like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> Like, am I watching, this is a musical? Because I did not think that's what it was. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, and, and in terms of watching the film, right, people have choices now, right? So there's the theatrical cut, there's the director's cut, um, and and when Kelly did the so-called director's cut, I mean, he, he, there wasn't, he didn't know what else to call it, but it was never his intention I mean, he was he was the director on the theatrical release, and he had a lot of say in editing, and he was happy with the film the way it came out in the theaters. Um, the so-called director's cut is he he described it as um, a special edition, right? It's like a special edition, but he he used the phrase comic booky. He was talking about it in one of the the um, the uh, commentaries, and about how it, was, it gives it a little bit more of a comic book feel. 
and you feel that with the breaking up of the chapters and the headings and all of that. But I, I, I don't want to get into all the nuances of his his world building, which was incredible. Um, but yeah, if you're gonna, if you have never seen this film, please watch the theatrical cut. Do not watch the director's cut. Uh, and then, if you want to explore more about, you know, kind of this world building that Richard Kelly did, then you can watch the director's cut too, which is about 20 minutes longer. Yeah. So I mean, before we really dive into the different kind of supernatural elements of the film, for me, what I really have taken away on every single rewatch this year, and I mean, I hadn't watched the movie since high school uh, before this year, just because for whatever reason, I hadn't revisited it. And so that was like probably a decade in between viewings. And what really sells this whole world and all of the different parallel universes and kind of time travel elements is Donnie, right? Kelly does such a fantastic job of grounding us in a very believable, not only character, but a world. The world doesn't feel fantastical. And while for a majority of the film, like I described it as a dark superhero movie and what sells the supernatural aspects again is just, we're meeting this very troubled teenager that while we might not all be seeing giant rabbits on some level, we can, I feel that teenagers could relate to him, right? He's rebellious, he's a little angsty uh, or really angsty in some instances, but it's a very believable portrayal of a teenager. And if they didn't have all the time travel elements, the portrayal of him early on before he sees Frank is still, again, relatable on some level to people. I figured we could just start kind of just talking about Gyllenhaal and Donnie, the character, uh, in terms of like just how well grounded, how well Kelly grounds us into this world with that character and his um, experience. Yeah, it's really incredible. I mean, the, the the kismet that is this movie to get this quality of acting, and I mean, you have Academy Award nominees, um, Mary McDonnell and like, these other people in this film, and and of course Patrick Swayze. After Drew Barrymore got involved, he came on board, and the, the cast here is just incredible. And this was Jake. Jake Gyllenhaal was 19 when he did this film. It was his first big film, his first thing. Um, you know, he looped his, humped his sister in with him, uh, who all, and of course, you know, the two Gyllenhaals, both Academy Award uh, nominees or winners, I forget, but, you know, just phenomenal actors, very young at the time. Um, and Jake Gyllenhaal absolutely makes this movie. Uh, I mean, it, Vince Vaughn was originally approached for this, and this movie would have gone absolutely nowhere, I think, if that had happened. <laughs> also Mark Wahlberg. And Mark Wahlberg, yeah. <laughs> but um, Marky Mark. But uh, no, Gyllenhaal is, his performance through this whole thing, you know, there's that part in the middle where we talk, uh, there's the timeline that the gym teacher talks about between fear and love. And there's this tension in this in this whole film. And I feel like you can, you can see that tension in Jake Gyllenhaal's face in every shot of this movie. You can't tell half the time, is he about to crack a smile or is he about to cry? He just, he's just on the verge these crazy swinging emotions through the whole thing. It's an incredible performance. And you have, um, you have, you know, and, and the way that Kelly grips us right from the beginning, right? The opening line of this film, I'm voting for Dukakis, right? So you're instantly, and you're at a family table, you have the tension. So you have, like within the first 10 seconds of dialogue with this film, you know exactly when it is, you know, the, you know, the cast of characters around this family table, you have Donnie swearing in front of his little sister and you have like, you know, all the family dynamics in like 90 seconds of film. It's, it's so well done and so well written. Um, and the character development, they, this is a very tight film. It's, I mean, it's very, it's pretty tight. It's about, it's like 90 minutes. It's not long, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, he's very tight with his editing and all those montages to music, like the opening montage, that's um, really, I think, probably one of the most well-known parts of the film, just the opening montage. But he films that and the other montages in the film, like a music video. I mean, he did them to the music he planned to use from the beginning, he knew exactly um, what he wanted. He, and he got it in a very short production time, it's 28 days. Yeah, which is uh, ironic considering that there's 28 days before the apocalypse yep. in the film. But what really stands out to me again is Hall's performance and I think it's hilarious that I read in an interview he said that um, I think it was him and Seth Rogen admit that like they still didn't know what the movie was really about when they went to the premiere they were just like yeah I mean I was in this movie and it was really fun making it but I really don't understand what the hell this is about <laughs> and I think that that's very telling just in his abilities as an actor right imagine showing up to something you don't understand what you're doing and yet you're able to convey this very 
uh, tumultuous relationship that this teenager is going through in his adolescent years. And it's very relatable. I mean, it's super relatable to me to a certain extent. And I think that that is the most telling thing about Gyllenhaal's performance is that before you even get to the supernatural stuff, it's a character that you're invested in. It's a character that you have sympathy for, that you're interested in learning more about. And a scene that really stood out to me, especially the last two times I watched it, is the scene early on when his mother comes in because he's not taking his pills and so she wants to ask him about this and whatnot. And they, they have this confrontation and when she leaves, he calls her a bitch and he says it loud enough so she can hear it. The camera cuts to her in the hallway, like standing there because she heard him. And then we cut back to Donnie and he like looks down at his book and he's about to go back to reading. And then he only looks at the book for a second before he puts it down again. And you can see that this is not a kid that is behaving in a rebellious way, that he has any ill intent in anything. It's very reactionary. Yeah. It's not, this is not a regular thing for him. Otherwise, his mother would not react that way. He would not react that way. And to see him be filled with remorse right after doing that, it separates it from every other movie about angsty teenagers where they call their parents this and that, and then they just move on because it's another day in their life. Whereas this is a kid that's unraveling to a certain degree, and you can tell early on, like you said, it's so tightly edited. You learn about the world and the characters and the relationships that you feel for him and you want to see him figure out how to stop this sort of downward spiral that he's uh, seemingly embarking on. Yeah, and he does, it's not even just with Gyllenhaal. It's really every part of the film. I mean, it's, it's, I think the character development in this film is so great, um, even for the ancillary characters. I mean, even Sharita, you know, there's, there's all these little ancillary characters that you feel for them, you want, you empathize with them. And even, you know, the one here, and, and little things, for example, the teachers, right? The two, the two, the, the Drew Barrymore character and the, the science teacher. Noah. And, you know, little things like they hold hands once, you see them in bed at the end of the film, so you know they're in a relationship. They don't need to explain it. But again, just little things like this ground these characters um, and, and make them feel more like real people. And even, of course, you have Kitty Farmer, played by Beth Grant, the, the gym teacher, who is, you know, the number one, you know, person in the movie at risk of becoming a caricature, right? This, this character really is almost a caricature. But even her, I at least I feel like it doesn't really go there because her performance is so sincere. And you have the shot, um, you know, the shot of her near the end of the film after the arson, where she's at, at the door of the Darko house and she's, you know, begging for help. The spark emotion thing or whatever. And you're like, why should we care about this? But you see, I mean, her, like her hair is disheveled. You can tell she's so sincere. This is not a caricature, right? She's not a clown. This is a real person. Right. And there are plenty of real people who think like her and act like her and teach gym class like her. And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leaving a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, which drives the show's success. And now, without further ado, let's get back to today's horrifying episode. In all of the characters in the film, you can really see Kelly drawing from somewhere. And I think that that is apparent, like you said, nobody ever becomes a full-blown caricature. I mean, Jim Cunningham, played by Patrick Swayze, might be a little bit, but at the same time, even, just as you think he's about to break character, he doesn't, right? Even when Donnie confronts him, right? You never see him kind of like have the inevitable blow up that you expect that he would when he's pushed to his full, the full extent of his um, ability to deal with that. And he never kind of like reveals that he's a fake. We know he's a fake based on Kelly's portrayal of him. And obviously through Donnie's eyes, we can see him as a cat, as a snake oil salesman essentially. But um, even before Donnie begins to exhibit any of his special powers or abilities, I think it's really interesting that we have a character that does not fit in this world and yet you can't exactly put your finger on why, right? It's kind of like what you said earlier. Every time we watch the movie, it's almost like you're about to, I forget how you put it, but it was like you're about to remember the dream that you just had when you're waking up. You're kind of grasping for the little details to hold on to. And in rewatching the film, you pick up on those little details every time. And I mean, seeing Donnie compared to all of his peers as I guess by the, um, the idea of like what a messed up teenager, that's like big air quotes, would be he's so much smarter than everyone around him. He's so much more mature than everyone around him. He doesn't, like he's got two friends, but they're described as his best friends. And yet you don't really understand why they're his best friends. They're just like two guys that hang out yeah. with him. And yet 
it's almost like he towers above everybody in terms of his intellect and his maturity. And I mean, the, one of the scenes that always makes me laugh is when they go to the bus stop and one of his buddies gives him a cigarette and he starts smoking the cigarette and his buddy's like, that's some good shit, right? And Donnie looks at him, he's like, it's a cigarette, <laughs> relax. Like little things like that, like they're supposed to be in high school and yet his buddy is acting like, I don't know, he's like, he's a middle schooler or something. But then just after that, one of his friends tells Sharita, like he, I think he says, um, go back to China, bitch. And immediately Donnie stands up for her. And it shows you that Donnie is the outlier from his friends group. And I mean, a majority of the males that are in the film are either agro-aggressive, whether it's the bullies or they're dickhead racists like his friends or they're snake oil salesmen. And Donnie is the one kind of adult male that I feel like is the most present. Even his own father, they have that conversation in the car at one point. His father like doesn't even know, doesn't know what's going on in Donnie's life. Yeah. and that ties into the rebellion angle a lot, this idea that all the teenagers and Drew Barrymore's character, the teacher even speaks to this and she says, we're losing them. And it's very interesting to me that the teenagers are so removed from a relationship with their parents, obviously. Like, of course, Donnie loves his parents and we see he is regretful when he calls his mother a bitch, but at the same time, they don't really understand what's going on with him. And that kind of just ties into Kelly's whole approach to making this a world that's filled with a lot of people that are broken for various reasons. And I mean, we see how that, uh, how that pans out for Donnie once he goes on his uh, journey. Yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, this film is, is really, it's a film about loneliness. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of ways to interpret um, the film, but I, I at least view that that way. I mean, I, Donnie is clearly, he doesn't fit in, right? And he's always trying to figure, okay, well, I'm not, I don't, he doesn't really fit in with his friends. He doesn't feel at the time like he really fits in with his family, even though he has a, a good, loving family. Um, he doesn't, you know, fit in at school. He doesn't fit in with his, you know, his teachers. Certainly not, you know, the this this new wave um, of evangelism or whatever is going on with with uh, Cunningham and the gym teacher and their their you know the secret <laughs> their version of that <laughs> program. <Yeah. laughs> but. Um, that's going on, so he feels increasingly. But but it's not just him, right? You also have Gretchen, who's lost and alone and had to change her name. She doesn't feel like she fits in, right? In the ugliness, um, you have Charita, who's clearly alone and lonely, and, and then you have kind of the Frank character um, doing this this whole guiding thing completely alone, and we never even see him in the film in the in the so-called um, uh, normal universe, right? <laughs> the present universe uh, until the very, very, very end. But even that, I think we get a little snippet of him at the very end when we're going through that montage of people that are clearly affected. We're, we'll get into the end of the, the time travel elements and stuff, but we even see him and it's this guy that's like in his room alone drawing these like demented artwork. So even Frank himself, like he, his character, we don't know really anything about him. He pops up in the uh, alternate universe and things like that. We know this uh, demon bunny version of Frank. But even though we don't know the real world Frank, we get a brief glimpse of him and he feels in line with that world, even if it's only for a second or two. And I mean, the characters are what I keep coming back to every time I revisit this movie and just how impressive, because I believe this is Kelly's first film, yeah. is it not? Yeah. yeah, this is his first film. And I know that he had done some shorts and whatnot before this, but it's really remarkable to me. And especially when you highlight the fact that the first 15 minutes, you know everything, I don't even know if it's the first 15, maybe the first 10 minutes, you are so in this world and you know the key players to a certain degree within the first 10 minutes of the film that it's, it really doesn't feel like, I think the film's an hour and 45 minutes, but it doesn't even feel that long. It feels like it's much shorter than that just because of how briskly paced it is. There's no wasted time in establishing the characters or the world. And then I feel like that legwork is what sells me on the time travel elements so well. Cause I'm personally, I'm not a big fan of like time travel stuff. I like, but I like back to the future and whatever, and a couple looper, um, but it's not usually a subgenre that I gravitate towards. And I think that the way that Kelly's able to make these supernatural topics believable is the right way to do a film like that, where it's you're invested in the characters and whatever kind of journey he's going on, whether he's gonna be haunted by a bunch of 
demonic rabbits or he's got to deal with the end of the world and time travel. I'm invested in Donnie. It doesn't matter what the journey is going to be. That leg uh, work that, he is, that Kelly has done is what has invested me in that character, his family, his friends. And I'm just along for the ride at that point. That's so, that's so true. And then, of course, that transcends every film genre. It just doesn't matter. If in the first 15, 20 minutes of your film, you get your audience to, you know, care about every single character on screen, it, does, it doesn't matter what kind of, you know, obstacles or, or, you know, shit you're putting them through. It just doesn't matter whether you're watching a horror film or a romance or a quirky indie something or a con it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter because you got, you're, you're hooked, right, as an audience member and you're gonna, you're gonna watch that to the end and you're gonna remember those first 20 minutes um, subconsciously and, and you're gonna go for that ride and you can let that director take you wherever they want. That's one of those things about, um, <laughs> I was revisiting like some reviews that came out when this movie came out and a, a recurring trend of some of the reviews was like, uh, the plot, it was very kind of just like abstract things. Like the plot doesn't make sense. There were some loopholes, it's too confusing, convoluted. And I was like, what? none of that matters because again, speaking to, what we have realized is transcends all genre is, is that you make the characters first and foremost, and then everything else for the most part can be, even if the story isn't the best or the different elements don't come together as they should, it's more about believing in the characters and that experience. I feel that really dictates my love of this film. And I mean, a lot of other films, but in getting to the more kind of supernatural aspects and time travel and things, I'm curious, what about Kelly's handling of these topics makes this memorable for you. Because again, it's not the first film obviously to deal with time travel or alternate dimensions, but for you, I mean, you said you'd watch this, there was a year where you were watching this two or three times a week. It clearly something about Kelly's portrayal of this uh, clicked for you. Well, I, I I liked that it's, like I said earlier, it's, it's the ambiguity of, listen, time travel is by definition a paradox, right? I mean, I, I've done, I'm, I am, by no means a time travel expert. I don't even know if there is such a thing, but I've read, you know, some of the scientific books about time travel um, and the, you know, theoretical um, time travel and all that stuff. And, and it's just fa it's fascinating to me. But I think I come back to uh, he, Kelly was able to thread this crazy needle where he builds he builds a story about time travel that you know gives you ninety eight percent of the, this, the, the universe that you need to understand everything that's going on. He gives you enough to make it seem like it makes sense, but every time you keep digging into it, uh, you just find paradoxes. And that's how time travel really would be if it were possible, uh, practically possible. I mean, I remember literally this film, this is the first time in my life I ever went on Reddit was like digging into this film and the like the threads 15 years ago on Reddit about the, <laughs> you can go down so many rattles, people writing pages and pages and pages. I saw people write PhD dissertations about this film. It's crazy. People have tried to break this down. Uh, and Kelly, to his credit, has been very tight-lipped about it. I mean, interviews he gave at the time and interviews he gave this year. Uh, people ask him questions about it. And uh, I mean, maybe he's just playing games, but he doesn't answer a lot of questions. He wants you to, he wants it to be ambiguous. Um, and I, th I think the bottom line is it's just like you said, I mean, he made it, the craft is so good. It's just such a good movie uh, that I don't care about the paradoxes and the unanswered questions because I'm just I'm having such a good time watching this wild ride um, and looking for new things every time I watch it. He's made it. It's just such a rewatchable film. It, it really is. And it's a movie that I can't believe it's taking me this long to revisit it just because of how rewatchable it is. And you know, there's, there's, whenever I talk about time travel movies, I always bring up Looper. And there's a scene in Looper. Have you seen Looper by Rian Johnson? I don't remember if I've seen, I've seen Primer. Okay, so Looper was about, it's basically, it's a time travel movie where a hitman has to kill his future self that comes back in okay, time. Yeah. And there's a scene in the diner. So spoilers for Looper. This is a brief scene, uh, brief spoiler. But there's a scene where old Joe and, old, uh, and young Joe meet in a diner finally. And they sit down and young Joe, of course, wants to know how time travel works. And old Joe, go, who's played by Bruce Willis, goes, it doesn't matter how something to the extent of, it doesn't matter because if we start talking about time travel, we'll be sitting here making diagrams with straws all right. day. And I think that that is such a quintessential 
piece of dialogue for a time travel movie, right? You need to introduce just enough so you understand the framework, and then you don't need to know the finer details of how 100% this works. That's not the point of it, the movie, of a good time travel movie in my opinion. It's not breaking down to the molecular level and all of these different things about the universe of how this happens. It's more about how people are utilizing time travel that's interesting and the characters and everything like that. And I think that that's to Kelly's credit, he has a similar approach. The first time you watch this movie, there's a good chance, there's probably like 99 point chance you are not gonna be able to grasp a majority of the film. This is a film that I know people hate saying this about movies, but like you can't just watch it once. This is a movie and it earns that rep, I think, that you have to watch multiple times, kind of for the reasons we said. Every time you watch it, pick up new clues, new interpretations because of ambiguity. And yet with this movie specifically, I never felt, I guess, moving away from the initial watch where you're just like, Oof, that was a that was a lot. I liked it, but it's kind of a lot. Yeah. There's a, a rabbit and all this kind of crazy jet engines traveling through time. And yet every single time you watch the movie, you want to learn more about it, but you're never completely lost. I never felt that I was every single time I was rewatching it. I was like, I just have no idea what's going on. Kelly gives you enough little breadcrumbs, as it were, to start to suss out your own interpretations of things and break through the ambiguity a little more each time. Even if your interpretation of something might be way off base based on something that he says later on or when you see the director's cut that kind of fleshes things out a little bit more, I feel like the way that he structures this world and this story, it gives you enough that you never feel lost. And I feel like some general audiences maybe, they get a negative interpretation of certain films or they have a negative experience because, oh well, this is just too confusing and it's being confusing for the sake of being confusing. I never kind of attribute that with this movie. I feel that it does a good enough job of giving you pieces, although I would say it gives you 75% of an answer and then the last 25% is ambiguous, but at least you have that 75 that you're going in sort of the direction that the narrative wants you to go. Totally, and it, and it works. It works so well and that's all you need. That's all the audience needs. Like Primer is another example, right? I, I That movie, is one of, if not the most accurate movie about time travel that's probably ever been made. About how, like how, you know, how you get all these compounding, like you, you know, alternate futures happening and and the complexities involved. But it's so dang accurate that it's impossible. It's like impossible to follow. You have to like write whole diagrams down to even understand what the heck's going on in that movie. I like the movie. I do like it, but that movie is impossible to follow. It's just impossible. <laughs> you have to make diagrams with straws to understand. Right, and also, and but there's other, you know, I look at a movie uh, like Starfish, for example, right? Supposedly a horror movie is on Shutter. I don't know if I would call it that, but. I watched that not a month ago for the first time. And one of those movies where I was like, there's elements, but I don't know if I would, it's more adjacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's another, I mean, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous film, but it's, that's so ambiguous, it's so vague that you really don't even know, am I, what am I watching? Is it, what, am I watching multiple timelines? Am I watching somebody's delusions? I don't even know what's going on. And so Donnie doesn't explain too much and Donnie doesn't explain too little. The movie just sits right in the sweet spot and it's entertaining. If you don't care one bit about time travel, you will still enjoy watching this movie. And that is the biggest tell of why this movie is so rewatchable. When I watched this in high school, I had no concept of any of the time travel stuff. I was not focusing on that at all. I wanted to watch a movie that had Jake Gyllenhaal that was about him being haunted by a demonic rabbit. Clearly, in revisiting it, it's much more than that. And yet, I still enjoyed the movie back then, even if... I, th I think that that is a much bigger deal than people give credit to this movie, and that even if you don't give a shit about time travel, you're still enthralled with the characters, and the imagery that uh, Richard Kelly crafts. And in comparing it to Starfish, not to obviously try to do a side-by-side because -side, those are two very different films, but Starfish I'm engaged with because of the visual fidelity of that movie and the soundtrack, which is unbelievable. And that you want to talk about good soundtracks and pairing that with visuals, that's Starfish. And while I think that Donnie Darko is both visually engaging and it has a great soundtrack, I'm more invested in the narrative of that and not necessarily the supernatural one of that. Again. It keeps coming back to us talking about 
the characters and how enthralled we are with them and how we were rooting for them and they're so multi-layered and yet that film is enjoyable for a lot of different reasons and I feel like the more you rewatch the movie you just your appreciation for it soars because okay I've already established I'm a fan of the narrative and the characters and whatnot and now I'm getting more of an appreciation for the time travel and it's one of the rare films that I feel in its complexity your appreciation really does grow and grow and grow for it in a way that I don't necessarily think a lot of movies that attempt to tackle so many different concepts in it necessarily land as well as this one does. Yeah, and I mean, let's be honest, Richard Kelly has never been able to repeat it. I mean, in his, yeah. in his other films, he Very did true. Southland Tales, which was a, I mean, a financial disaster. Um, people can argue about whether they liked it or not. It was not favorably reviewed generally. Um, and then he did The Box, right? An adaptation of a Twilight Zone episode, basically. Um, which is uh, which is okay, it's it's okay, uh, but nothing like this crazy you know magical thing he captured when he was 24 years old. It was just in, that, that that's it's insane, insane to me. I did not know that. <laughs> it's insane how lucky he got. And, and I mean, I, I I use the word luck here. Um, I think a lot of the casting that he got was made a lot a lot of what made this movie. But it's not luck. Um, he I mean he wrote and he directed it. And this was a passion project of him from when he was a teenager. I mean, this specific story, it started with, he had a, I don't know if it was a friend or just an acquaintance or he heard about somebody, some kids, um, there was like a giant piece of ice crashed through this kid's bedroom while he was away at a sporting event or something. So he wasn't there, he missed it. And that planted the seed for this, what, what would become this movie, you know, when, when, uh, when Kelly was a kid. He never forgot that, and he slowly, you know, kind of worked on this story all through high school, all through film school, and he had it. He had spent, you know, 15 years writing this movie when he finally pitched it, um, and he hasn't he hasn't had an experience like that since. But but uh, this movie, this was a fully formed project, you know, in his mind for a very 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 long time, and you can tell, you can tell the world building is so. I mean, he, the guy, freaking wrote the philosophy of time travel, which you don't even see in the film. But he wrote like half a textbook about a fictional, like, you know, a set of rules about tangent universes and how people are manipulated. And he wrote all this in and you don't even get that in the film. But that's you could it comes through in his writing. Um, and that's one of the reasons that the editing seems so good is because he had pre-edited for a decade, you know, exactly what he wanted to show and tell and what he wanted to leave kind of kind of vague. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a testament to, you know, preparation is nine tenths of everything. And it really, really was in this film. This is a great transition into comparing the theatrical version, which is the version that I've seen, and then the director's cut, which you're very familiar with. Um, and I'm interested, I don't really, I guess I'm gonna phrase it like, which one do you prefer? But I guess since Kelly himself stated, he doesn't refer to the quote unquote director's cut as a director's cut, right? He refers to it as like a special edition or an extending because Personally, he has stated he thinks that the theatrical version was, I don't know if it was the definitive version, but he said he didn't have any qualms with the way that came out. Right. He felt very confident in that. And I think that that's very telling because from all the research that I did into what the director's cut entails, and I'm interested to hear your take on it, it seems that the director's, and I'm only keep referring to it as director's cut because that's how it's marketed. Right. Like if you try to buy it, it's uh, theatrical and then director's. The director's cut, it fleshes out and it answers a lot of the mysteries. It fills in a lot of the blanks. And I'm curious your opinion, whether or not that is the definitive or if that is a, that is supplement, it merely serves as supplemental, right? This idea that if you're a fan of Donnie Darko, you can enjoy the director's cut, even if it's not necessarily imperative that you watch it. Yeah, I, so in answering that question, I wanna go back and talk about the marketing for this film because, um, so it's, okay, remember the Blair Witch Project was 99, right? Internet sensation. Um, and this is the you know, very early days of the internet. This is before social media. Uh, Facebook was still like, you know, only people who went to college were allowed to use Facebook. I mean, was, this is a long time ago, folks. But in, in 2001, um, after Sundance, they did a premiere at Sundance. They rushed through the production and got it done and got it at Sundance. It was not received very well at Sundance. 
Um, critics were like scratching their heads. They didn't know what to make of this film. I got some pretty good audience reactions, but the critics and the producers were really confused and didn't know what to do with it. Um, it didn't get any, it didn't get picked up by anybody at Sundance. So they were very nervous. They did eventually get picked up later this summer, in that summer of 2001. Um, but in the meantime, they frantically threw together a website. And this, I remember this website. Holy crap, the, the Donnie Darko film website was unlike any website on the internet at the time. It was, it was this abstract puzzle box thing. It explained nothing. You, you, had, you like clicked on random pages of the thing and it would highlight, you know, fake news articles about the town from 30 years ago. And it sent you down this whole set of, not to be, you know, joking, but rabbit holes, right? This whole website was a website full of rabbit holes. And as you would explore this website, um, very, very hard to make any progress. But eventually you could find little clues and these clues would lead to kind of explain more about the philosophy of time travel, explain more about the film, reveal a little bit more of the world building that he had done. It was so ahead of its time, this website. I saw that it's it's been archived on the internet. Like there's a little archive page and I was clicking around on it. Um, yeah, it's funny because when I came to the movie in high school in Ten years ago, um, <laughs> coming to it and seeing it, I was like, "Oh yeah, that looks like the special features from DVDs that I used to pass over." But I have the internet at that point, so it's like, "What's the purpose of that?" So I can it. It's not lost on me though the the lengths that Kelly went to fleshing out this world. Yeah. It's very interesting to me that not only was the film difficult to market for obvious reasons, but in terms of when it was released and critics not adoring it as much as fans do, and we know obviously, especially at that time, like critics having a larger voice about something kind of supersedes audiences whether they like it or not um but in terms of just kelly having the foresight that hey i need to cut out a majority of what is it content that's found in the quote-unquote director's cut right so the idea that he was able to remove all of that and i want to get into i wanted you to uh just tell the listeners some of the things that the director's cut includes um it's really interesting to me that he was able to cut content that is mostly additional exposition, and yet the film is still so structurally sound as it is for the theatrical version. Yeah. Well, and that's what, I mean, that's what all of that stuff that is in the, the so-called director's cut, a lot of it came from that website. So that's why I was starting talking about the website because, you know, it was really only the crazy geek, you know, weirdo fans like me digging through that website were able to kind of piece together parts of this movie that other people were really confused about. And it was like this, this strange bond that Kelly made with his fans, right? I'm gonna make this ridiculous, incomprehensible website that only super nerds are gonna waste <laughs> their time trying to dig through to understand my movie. He doubled down, right? He made a movie that's confusing. And then he said, go to my website, it's even more confusing, but you'll find it. <laughs> but anyway, so eventually, right, then he, he, he revisited the film and decided to make this director's cut. And he took a lot of the stuff that was on the website, the explanations and kind of spliced it in uh, to the director's cut. He broke up the film into some chapters, which kind of go along with the chapters of this fictional book that he wrote um, that explain kind of the steps in how Donnie has to kind of save the world. So you could you could spend hours on Reddit and YouTube videos. We're not gonna spend two hours talking about what this, how to interpret this film because there is no right answer. And lots of people have more interesting things to say about than I do. But the really short version that is the general consensus of this movie is uh, there's some kind of rift in space-time. It uh, either there are already parallel universes or this rift creates a parallel universe. It's very unstable. It has a shelf life of about 28 days. Uh, and somebody needs to take what they call the artifact, which is a piece of metal, uh, in this case, a jet engine that is in the tangent universe uh, that was ripped from the primary universe into the tangent universe. It, got, it has to get returned to the primary universe to solve this, or else there'll be a black hole that consumes both dimensions and the entire universe will end. That's the 10 second version of what most people think this this film is about. Uh, but anyway, so so in this process, Kelly, like I said, he, he, he kind of wrote this fake book 
about the process of, okay, you have, you're going to have one person who's going to be chosen to make this sure this happens so the universe doesn't at any time this happens. There's a reference to Roberta Sparrow being, um, you know, having dealt with this situation earlier in her life. Now she's a crazy old lady. Maybe if you don't kill yourself like Donnie chooses to at the end, uh, you end up crazy like her, who knows? But anyway, there, there's this whole set of rules and superpowers that he has. Um, and you're, you, you see the evidence of that through the film where you can swing a, so you can swing an ax into a statue. There's, there's allusions to maybe him having control over fire and water. Um, and I just, I mean, for me personally, I don't think anyone ever needs to see the director's cut. You just don't. If you, um, if you really see the theatrical cut and you love it and you want a lot more details into his world building that he did, that's a reason to watch the director's cut. Um, a lot of the extra scenes there are, I mean, there is extra scenes. Some of it is, um, so there's really three things that were added in the director's cut. One is breaking up the film into the chapters, like I mentioned, with little place cards, uh, which I just think breaks, the film is already edited so well, you don't need to break it up like that. Um, unless you want to, it's kind of like a game, right? You want to like know, oh, okay, well now, now I see this is where the, you know, the manipulated dead come in. And this is where, you know, all these terms that he made up. If you want to be really explicit about that, he can walk you through it in the director's version. The second thing that he did was add a few of the deleted scenes back in. Um, there, and there are some great, there's a great scene between Donnie and his dad. That's just, it doesn't really add anything to the film, but, but, um, but just solidifies their relationship. I mean, uh, again, he, Donnie has some really great scenes with his mom that show how real that relationship is. And this, this one deleted scene really, I think it, it solidifies that with his dad, which in the theatrical cut, you didn't get as much. Um, this, he really does have loving, good parents. And if you're a fan of the characters and all of, and the depth of their character, then yeah, that's a deleted scene that sounds worth Yeah, watching. yeah. I mean, for me, when I go back and watch deleted scenes, I get to the end of the deleted scene and I'm like, yeah, there's a reason that's a deleted scene. So to hear that he fleshes out relationships more, when personally that's one of the reasons why I like the film so much, that would be a reason for me to check yeah, that there's out. I mean, there's definitely some great deleted scenes. There are. Um, the uh, And then there's the third thing that he has in the director's cut is, which I really don't agree with, is there's some, th there's some like visions that Donnie's having, right? And you see kind of more of his perspective when he's having, when it's implied that, okay, when Frank is controlling him or possessing him or telling him what to do, whatever's happening between Frank and, and Donnie's brain, um, there's these weird visions of like eyeballs and futuristic cities. And it kind of maybe seems like aliens are involved or something. It's hard, really hard to say. Uh, which is also a little bit contradictory because in some of the deleted scenes, uh, which I don't think are even in the director's cut, they're true deleted scenes. There, there were several. Rep there's more references to God and religion in a lot of the deleted scenes, and I think Kelly wisely cut a lot of that out and left it more ambiguous. Um, some of the deleted scenes made it made it seem more more explicit that you know this is fate, this is God directing what's what Donnie is doing, and a lot of that was cut out. I think that that is. It's very telling again that he had such a clear vision for this and he had the foresight to be like, listen, this is not going to go into the movie. I'm going to save this for the diehard fans. And while I haven't watched the director's cut, I did read all of the different kind of like pages that are introduced that very explicitly describe not only the path that Donnie is on, but also like detailing the powers and the parameters of the worlds and the universes and the multi timelines and things. And as soon as I read all of those things, I was like, there is 100% no reason that a majority of people need to have any of this. And yet in just watching the theatrical and loving it so much, I was like, oh, this is great supplemental material because it helps me flesh out some of the ambiguity. And yet again, Kelly never 100% spells things out. Most of it, I was like, well, some of, I'll say some of it, not most of it, but some of it I was like, yeah, I kind of was able to interpret that already from the film. I didn't need that. And so while it's there, that's fine. And yet at the same time, it's a testament to the theatrical version. Like when uh, when Frank has Donnie go to the school with the ax and he has him flood the school and then impale the, uh, the bronze statue of the dog, I don't need to be told that Donnie has super strength. I realize that Donnie has super strength. And yet, even though Kelly goes to the lengths to just fully describe that, I feel 
sure, for some people, if some people really want answers, that's great. For somebody like me, I like having a little more structure because I like the theatrical so much. I like being given a little bit more supplemental in terms of the parameters of the world and why certain things are done, especially like with sending the jet back in time and things like that through a time portal. At the end of the day, I don't really give a shit about how the specifics of time travel works, but I'm appreciative of having more structure to certain things that Kelly did not, did not make a film that was ambiguous for the sake of it. He left ambigu ambiguity in there because there is a larger structure to things, and yet he's able to convey them in a way that is entertaining, that's filled with existential dread, unsettling, and yet you don't need to know the inner workings of it. You get more appreciation for it if you get the supplemental material that details the inner workings. And yet I find the content in the director's cut that I'd seen, that was the pages and more supplemental material, it's not, you don't need to know that stuff to enjoy the film, even after you've seen it, right? Again, it heightens your appreciation maybe, I did for me, and yet it's not needed, which is remarkable to me because you would think that watching the theatrical version, oh, there would be, this would be awkward, this would seem out of place, this would seem like it's been cut, and yet I don't get that impression on my third rewatch in a year of the movie. It feels like it is a very direct narrative that he planned from the beginning and then to find out, oh, there's all this other, like you said, he did all that legwork in establishing the universe. He wrote basically a mini dissertation on the parameters of it, and he's able to tell a, con a compelling story without having to do all of that or include all of that the first yeah, time. Yeah, again, it's, it's, it is completely shocking that a 24-year-old filmmaker on their first film can have the maturity to spend that much time doing all this behind the scenes world building and then have the maturity to sit back and say, okay, I know a hundred times more about what's going on than my audience will, and I'm not gonna put any of that in the film. I'm gonna take it all, I'm just gonna make them figure it out. Could you imagine what the reviews would say if he had left all of that no, stuff? No, I know. It would have been terrible. Like what it's, and I'll give you an example. And I, I, Kelly's is not this bad, but for me, it was like growing up watching the Star Wars films. And then you see episodes one, two, and three. And the first time they say the word midichlorian and you're like, what the hell is going on? Like, I didn't, I don't, you're talking about the, like the cellular regeneration like uh, abilities of Jedi's. And now it's somehow like in their blood and genetic. We didn't need any of this crap. What is, where is all this coming from? And even George Lucas, even if this is something that you had always talked about and contemplated, your first three films are a thousand times better when they were just mysteries. We didn't need to know any of this. It doesn't help us enjoy this film experience. And that's what is, I, that's why I kept like focusing on the fact that this supplemental material, while it fleshes things out more, I still feel like there's a good amount of mystery in the movie and it doesn't 100% fill in the blanks for me. It gives me more context. It fills in some blanks that I was already kind of assuming through the ambiguity. And yet every time I watch the movie still, even with that new information, I'm still thinking, well, what if he did this instead or that? And it doesn't, almost having that in, those questions answered doesn't completely dispel the mystery. And that's one of the things that uh, for like horror movies, you always see like the original movie, it's a mystery. That's why it's terrifying. You'll never understand. And then when they do 15 sequels, they feel they need to flesh things out. That's when it stops being scary, right? That old yep. kind of standby. And with this film, I don't feel that that is what happens once you see the director's cut. Again, I think theatrical version is fine for 90% of people to watch it. I, if I was going to watch it, I would watch the theatrical because it's the most streamlined version. And yet I can still appreciate him with all that extra world building. And it, if anything, it gives me more of an appreciation, but it just makes me want to go back and watch the theatrical. I could not imagine having those chapter breaks in the film, completely destroying the flow of the movie. You say it's 20 minutes extra, but in a film that is so tightly edited as the theatrical, I can't imagine lumping another 20 minutes on. It would feel like an eternity, I feel like, because the pace is so brisk for this it film, is. for the theatrical. It is. And yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't want to knock the director's version. It's not it's not a bad version or anything. It, he, and he's very clear, and he said it multiple times, you know, I, both versions of the film stand on their own, and they serve different purposes. The theatrical purpose is meant for general audiences. That's why it was released. 
And for the diehard fans who want more, you can see the director's cut. And that's and that's completely accurate. I completely agree with him saying that. I, I view it the same way. Yeah, him making that distinction is very important. And again, yeah, I I guess I didn't want to I didn't want it to come off as like asking you to recommend one or the other. It's just more for people that are interested in the film if they're still listening. I'm sure they have. And <laughs> if they've seen the film, if they've seen the film, then it. If anything, I feel that the director's cut serves as an updating from the website, right? Because how many people are going to go through on that archived website? Most people that watch the movie, if they're coming to it now, chances are they don't know anything about the website. So if anything, it's kind of just a modern updating off of that. Um, and so, yeah, it's one of the few films, though, where it's like my, the more that is explained, I still have more questions. And I think that for that to be, what was it? Uh, 18, 19 years since it was released. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a very telling thing again to this 24 year old uh, having the passion and all of the, like you said, the legwork he did before the film even came about. Just fleshing out this world with characters that you're invested in and some crazy shit happens and there's multiple universes and parallels and you don't understand everything right away. And yet it's still a film that speaks to everybody in a certain way. And like you said, I mean, the film being about loneliness or being about a very basic emotion, when you're able to connect with people on emotions like that, whether, I mean, I have that interpretation too, that it's very much a movie about lonely people in a world that feels like it's growing lonelier. And yet, even if you don't feel that way, you people still come into the film and they're like, well, if there's loneliness, I can relate to that on some level. So you've got me in this world on an emotional level. And so, even if the time travel stuff doesn't click for everybody, I feel, again, coming back to that uh, world building that he did with those characters, like you can't not be engaged with the film on a certain level. Again, not to give credit to reviewers and things like that, but it's like, because I am a reviewer myself, but it's this idea that you're going to say that a film doesn't connect with you or it doesn't connect with an audience when it's based on characters and emotions. In certain degree, you know. Yeah, this movie is ultimately—it's a movie about emotion, uh, and it's about loneliness and love and fear. It's about religion. It's about destiny. It's about um, predestination, foreordination. You know, how how much control do we really have? Uh, what is the meaning of life? Right. All these unanswerable, big questions that everybody feels and thinks about on a subconscious level. <clears throat> subconscious level uh, that he doesn't really answer and that he doesn't pretend to answer um, but that's what makes it so relatable I mean you, like you said it's we, we feel we've all been Donnie right we've all seen hypocrisy we've all seen love masquerade as fear and vice versa um, we've all questioned how much how, how in control of our own destiny are we really and this movie, just like all these huge big picture feelings and concepts that are relatable to every human being, he has thrown into this film. Uh, and you get to laugh about Smurf sex at the same time. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> Absolutely, and it comes back to the rewatchability of the film because you can focus on any one of those elements you just mentioned. And in focusing on that, I'm sure you will pick up something new every single time you watch it. And it just, I love that again, keep coming back to the ambiguity of it, introduces all of these topics and avenues that it can go down, and yet he doesn't definitively say it's any particular one. And I think that that's so important because even if you don't, if, even if for people that got frustrated by the movie because they didn't understand it, you can never say that he was preachy about anything because he covers all these bases. And that goes back to what you were saying about characters never becoming caricatures of themselves, right? It never comes back to... We never get the gym teacher shouting about fire and brimstone, which you know if she probably has at some point in her character, but you just get the the public persona that she puts out there, just enough that you understand who she is, and yet it never turns into a lecture. And for me, that is very telling, and it speaks to Kelly's maturity in that he knew just enough to, when to reel back. And to your point earlier when you said, well, he hasn't made a film that was nearly as... Um, I don't want to misquote you, but it was something to the effect of like, it hasn't been as successful as Donnie Darko. Hasn't had as much claim and fandom around it. I think it's, I wouldn't say that I knew anything about the development of those movies, but 
Donnie Darko is indicative of somebody that did a lot of homework in establishing the world of this film, and that's something that I think is very difficult to replicate. I agree. <laughs> but I'm so glad it was made. Uh, this little $4 million indie film that Drew Barrymore saved, you know, is, it is truly, it's one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, and introducing us to the world of Jake Gyllenhaal and Seth Rogen and all these other crazy people in this tiny little film in early 2001 that nobody saw at the time, but would go on to be, the, you know, kind of the, probably the quintessential cult classic of the early 2000s. Absolutely. I don't think I could, uh, I don't think I could sum it up any better than that, but as always, Mike, it's a pleasure having you on to chat horror and horror adjacent films. Thanks, Jay. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.